Welcome to the Circuit Clouds podcast, the official podcast of United League Baseball, purveyors of fine fake baseball since 1951 or 2003. Joining us today, we have, as usual, Glenn Reed. Hello, Glenn. Hello. And a special guest, uh, Montreal UL champions, Montreal Voyagers GM, Joao Lima. Joe, how are you doing today? Uh, not so bad, not so bad. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us from all the way across. So you're, you are our first um, transatlantic uh, guest on the podcast, so that's exciting in itself. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do this as we've done uh, previous kind of interview podcasts of other GMs, so we thought we would get to know Joe a little bit and talk about his experience with fake baseball and uh, leading Montreal to the title last year. So before we get started, Joe, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Give us a little bit sense of your background. I mean, we know some some of the pertinent facts. Uh, we know that you're Portuguese, but you're kind of Scottish at the same time. We know you have a horse. We know that you're related to Magellan. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah, so I, I was born in Portugal. I moved to Scotland shortly after graduating from uni. So I've been here for the best part of my adult life. So in essence, I'm kind of a bit more Scottish than Portuguese, mm-hmm. because even though I grew up in Portugal, just went through school and through the motions, kind of made my adult life and essentially what I am today in here. I am, some of you know, an architect, which sounds very glamorous, but it's, it's, it's far from being kind of image portrayed by Hollywood. It's not like Burt Reynolds on a convertible with big rolls of paper chatting out blondes around. They're brunettes, not blondes, right? <laughs> not even that. <laughs> um, Besides, I think you just described my job, bro. <laughs> what? Going around with big rolls of paper? Yeah, yeah. Or uh, sending emails to random people and project management and that's it, yeah. you know. I thought you were just going to say now that you actually drive around convertibles chatting up blondes with big rolls of paper, but okay, fair enough. <laughs> if, I fair were, enough. if I were quicker on the uptake, that's what I would have said. Fair enough. I also do, which not a lot of people know, second stream of work, which I do. I started doing it as a hobby. So 20 years ago, I design historical and training simulations. I've done work, including for the U.S. Air Force for their officer training program which is something I did for um, an actual American company called John Tyler Simulations. So you design and create uh, war games? Yeah, essentially, yeah, in short. That's very cool. I've published, I mean, if you go there, you can see I've published some of them. They are on random topics like the Spanish Civil War. Wow, so you started this as a hobby? This essentially started as a hobby, then it spiraled off because they had a a professional contract with the US Air Force to do simulations for the yearly training program. That almost deserves a whole separate episode. We might have to to dive into that. That's fascinating. Yeah, bro. Can you recommend a good US Civil War simulation? Or do you know, did you run one of those or or create one of those? No, never did one of those. Matrix Matrix Games have got a really good one, which is the one done by 2 by 3 simulations. I've meanwhile kind of veered off this historical side and moved into the Cold War. Nice. I'm a bit of a specialist in modern equipment and things like that. So I'm working on that now. 
a lot of the work I do is translating the capabilities of modern equipment into databases. So essentially translate real world capabilities into numbers so so that they can be used by the program to determine outcomes. And in, in recent times, as I said, I've moved to Scotland. Originally, funnily enough, we started in London and we were actually thinking of moving to Paris. But we came here on Scotland on a holiday and just liked it so much and thought, yeah, why not? It's closer than Paris, so let's just move here. And been here since. Awesome, very cool. And you're in Glasgow, is that right? No, Edinburgh. Oh, <laughs> I was oh, gonna say, oh, dude. Oh, dude. I mean, I mean, it's already Ooh. Paris to Scotland is one thing, but Paris to Glasgow would be like, come on, bro. I mean, that's like, it, that's like, I don't know, moving from New York City to Stockton in our terms, like uh, yeah. it's impossible trade. I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, I'm shocked it's, enough to say that you picked Scotland already, right? But at least Edinburgh, you're like, all right, you know. Well, yeah. For those that don't know, I mean, essentially Edinburgh is is um is not exactly your typical Scottish city as Glasgow is. Edinburgh is a much more international city. There's a lot of students. There's a lot of people from all around Europe, from all around the UK, from all around the world, essentially, around here. So it's a city very different from Glasgow. Glasgow is still a properly Scottish city. Everything is very dour and yeah. you don't want to go there on Friday evenings. Or, or Tuesday evenings. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, so the first question we have to ask you is, how did you get into baseball? Well, I wish I had a really good story, but actually it's, it's not that romantic. Back when I was studying, so we are talking about 1995, I just had a lot of idle time. I just had nothing to do and I did nothing. So on some evenings, I would just stay up watching TV. And back then we had, I'm not sure if it was NBC or MSNBC. I have no actual idea what it was called, but they used to broadcast a baseball game. So this happened, I mean, this started roughly at back then at around midnight in Portugal. And it lasted until three, four o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, because they broadcast live the entire game. And for some bizarre reason, they usually only broadcasted games that involved the Mariners. I once was just going through TV, saw the game, and decided to watch it for a while. And I couldn't make bloody head or tails of what was happening. I mean, you obviously understand there's a guy with a big stick, there's a guy throwing a ball at it. The guy with a big stick wants to hit the ball. But after that, the entire thing just was a bit mesmerizing. You just look at it and thinking, what on earth is happening in there? Well, this being me, I had to actually find out what is happening in here. What actual is this game? How do they go about this? Why is there so many numbers on the screen? What's the importance of all these numbers? So this was the start of the internet. I was fortunate that the, the university where I was actually adhered to the internet in force. At that time, I also had a home. It was the first time that I could use the internet for, which is something that you do these days, but back then was not common. It was something strange to do. You use it to search for information. And it's very useful because obviously there was no information available in Europe regarding baseball. There's nothing. Um, so I start reading about it and 
I started watching it more and more and more. And because I like, as you may have gathered from someone that does as a hobby, turning real world things into numbers, I like numbers, I like statistics, I like the entire concept of a game that is essentially almost, you, you can almost see the game through all the statistics that the players generate, that the teams generate and all that. And that attracted me in the game. And I became, it became more and more of a regular feature. I started watching it in parallel with the time that I was stopping watching football to a large extent. So eventually baseball, I started watching more baseball than I was watching football. So at that point, there was kind of a swap in interest and I just have been around it since then. That's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to me how, how Europeans fall into basically learning a completely foreign sport, right? So by the way, your description of, uh, of a guy with a stick trying to hit a ball, like that, what you described is exactly my experience every time I've tried to watch and understand cricket. Because it's basically the same thing. <laughs> like, uh, okay, he's trying to hit the ball. Sometimes he hits it. You know, I, I know that they're trying to catch it. Um, and if, the thing that confuses me with cricket is like there seems to be two different. There's not just a single score. There's like overs and unders, and there's like uh, I don't know. I yeah. So I, I I have no idea how cricket works. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> and I I mean the two games are obviously loosely related, but I haven't a Scooby. Yeah. How yeah. cricket works. All right. So let's fast forward a bit. So uh, so you fell in love with baseball because of all these numbers on the screen. And that 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 led you to kind of like try to decipher this game and figure everything out. So was it around this time that you discovered? Because, again, it sounds like you're big into like numbers and simulation and this kind of thing. So is that what led you to out of the, out of the park baseball? Yeah. Um... There's it. There's a bit of a lull in the. It, it relates. Sorry, I'm going. This is sounding very Japanese in the way I'm going around the story in a big circle, but I'll get to the point. Um, there's a bit of a lull in the championship manager football manager series, and at that time there wasn't any new games being generated. I, I still play those games these days. I've got my own leagues that I do and so on. But anyway. But there was a bit of a lull, and I was interested in finding a similar game that was more up-to-date and that had real teams and so on. There was nothing for football really interesting. And that's when I found Out of the Park Baseball. I think it was 2006, maybe, something along those lines. And it seemed to fit It, it back then... Uh, uh, a really nice place because it was very similar in principles to the games I was used to, to regarding football, football manager, championship manager, it's called back then. Um, but it was all about baseball and it had the added benefit of having the online leagues. The online leagues were, were an entirely novel thing in my experience because it was the first time that you actually, that I had the possibility of playing a game with other people around the globe which was difficult because if you imagine in a game like baseball, it's virtually impossible to be at the same time to play a game with people in the US. It's just very difficult to do it on a regular basis. But this, the, the online leagues, because everything was done 
it doesn't really matter the time to which you do your exports, the, the timing at which things are updated, etc. This was really, really cool. It was a totally novel thing and immediately picked up my interest. So I started participating in those leagues virtually from the first out-of-the-park baseball game I had, which I think it was 2006. Pretty certain it was. Yeah, so I'm looking at the UL timeline, and it looks like you joined the United League around 2015, and you took over the Chicago Colts for that, for yeah. that one year before you before you came to Montreal. But I remember, like, I remember you reaching out to me, like, this might have been even before, because because that that '76 season it was odd for a number of reasons. Number first of all, the league had been on hiatus for four years, and then we came back. And we and we played one year in, in 2015, and then we went back on hiatus for five more years. So basically, there was a nine-year span there where we only played one single season, and that was 1976. Yep. But I remember you emailing me saying, like, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this league. When are you guys starting up again? And I have to give you credit, Joe, because you actually were one of the impetuses for for, for uh, resuming the league both times, actually, if I recall, like um, you were very keen on like, okay, let's get this. This sounds really cool. Let's get this going. It's like, okay, like let's uh, – let, let's let's uh, you know move this league forward again. So, did, can you remember like how you initially found the United League, or what other leagues were you involved in before 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 us? I don't know. How I found it, but I was really interested because it was a, a totally different. The United League was a totally different concept from the vast majority of the leagues. Well, certainly all the ones I knew, because back then the leagues that I knew of were along two lines. Either there was the people that play the league that usually started on whatever date the game came out. So current season and forward, which usually tended to die not soon after you you went through the current season. Or they were historical, but essentially they followed roughly the same pattern that baseball does. So the, the leagues, even though the, the name of the teams could be different, they still follow the same historical patterns of having whatever divisions there were, whatever number of teams you had all the minor leagues involved in it. So essentially you were just transporting modern day football into an historical setting in a way. And this this one, the United League was quite different because to start with, it was a much reduced number of teams, which is one of the things I really enjoy about the league because you get to know the people that are in the league. I'm in another league at the moment, and I must confess, I know two, three people in there of the 32 managers. I don't even know who the rest of the people are. I mean, some of them could change. I don't even know about it. So this league picked my interest for that because it was, it was small. The concept was really interesting because the, there's a lot of talent in the league. There's, it's not like you have 16 teams with a lot of talent and 16 teams filled with scrubs that the other guys just don't want. And so the entire thing ends up being a bit totally unbalanced and totally biased toward certain teams. So I really like the concept. I really like the, the and for some bizarre reason, I really like the website back then. The old website, I, I found it really interesting the way you had the images of the stadiums and the small bio of the of the general managers and all that. It seemed, yeah, everything seemed so. The scale of the league, I thought, was much more interesting than this big thirty so teams leagues, which just get too pulverized and you just don't know anyone. 
you are not familiar with a lot of the things that are happening because it's impossible to actually keep a hold of everything that is happening over 32 teams with, I don't know, how many levels of minors and all that. So I think this one was far more interesting than the other ones, which is why probably it was a pain over the years. Sorry about that. I tend to be like that. No, no, you weren't a pain at all. It was like, it was, uh, I think you, you kind of gave a boost of, of new energy, right? Like fresh blood in the league, like, uh, you know, fresh excitement. So we're always excited to have bringing new GMs who like have that level of interest and, and, and level of excitement about the league. But I, you also just made a very convincing argument for keeping the league on the smaller side, on the more intimate side, I know we just expanded to 16 teams and we're likely going to expand to 18 at some point, but, but you, you make a pretty good argument for, you know, not expanding too quickly, not making it too large to where, like you're saying, the league will um, split into two factions of like those who are like very active managers, very aggressive, you know, very competitive teams and the rest where they're, you know, the rest of the league of teams that are just kind of left behind. My experience with online leagues is a bit that I, I've seen the good, the bad, and the really ugly. Um, but usually, one thing that most leagues have in common is that you, you essentially sometimes you don't even know that the team is empty until a season has gone by. And the commissioner then comes and says, Ah, actually, not sure if you guys noticed, but there hasn't been any exports from so and so for the entire season. And he's just say, oh, okay, fair enough. That's a bit strange. It's a bit, gets a bit almost pointless in a sense, because at some point, in some leagues, you might just as well be playing against a computer. It's roughly the same thing. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sounds like what you're describing is kind of like a hybrid, like half half human run teams and half... Ah. And, and yeah. half like AI or whatever. Yeah. So, which can be fun to an extent, but, um, you know, I imagine that a lot of those leagues, like there's the same few teams that just keep dominating and, and the same personalities kind of dom- maybe dominating the league, or I don't even know if they have forums or whatever, but, but, but it's, yeah. it's, it sounds like the United League is like more, from your experience, there's more like everyone in the league is more of an active manager and kind of everyone's getting involved yeah. with things. Yeah, exactly. I think it makes sense, right? I mean, like, it's hard. I mean, we already see it in our own experience, right? Like, it's hard to get 14 dudes or 16 dudes who are super engaged and in it all the time. It's, like, doubly, therefore, doubly hard to find 32. Right. <laughs> those those big leagues. I mean, I, I played in some of those. Dude, I just I couldn't take it, you know? It's just nuts, right? right? So, right. yeah, so this seems to be, like, a good... I mean, to me, at least it's a good sweet spot. And like you said, it's like, oh, manageable size. So I actually can know everybody. And, and uh, but yeah, but the key is like you say, if you can just find 14 or 16 or whatever the number is, you know, engage, engage people with a plan. That's, that's about, I think that's a uh, fake baseball nirvana, I guess I would say. My two cents here for me is I would rather, you know, like lately there's like a super concentration of talent. You know, every every team has uh, a super powerful lineup, right? So it's uh, the talent is too concentrated. But f- from my perspective, I would rather have that and have fully active, engaged GMs. 
than to have the alternative, right? Of like only one or two superstars per team. The talent is widely dispersed, but then you then you have maybe a third or half of the GMs just aren't engaged. So for me, I'd, I'd much more have super concentrated talent because to me, that's just a feature of the league. It's not a bug to have like four sluggers in your lineup. That's Every team's like that. Yes, it's different from the major leagues, but that's one of the whole points of the of the league is that it's, um, remember when we started, we started with eight teams. We've always had, half the number of teams as there were historically. So um, we're kind of keeping that ratio as we go forward. Yeah, I think that makes sense, bro. Yeah. Like you're 50%. It's, I think that that's perfect. Uh, again, I mean, as far as the sweet spot goes, that's about as good as we can do. And I think, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it works nicely. Yep, I agree. We won't even talk about that one year in Chicago, that 76 season. Most people don't even remember it. Cause like, as I mentioned, it was kind of a one-off that one year we brought in a yeah. couple of younger managers. My son was a managed Detroit. Uh, Jeff Tunnell's son managed Manhattan that year and led them to the title, which is essentially Eric's team. Right. And then, cause I think Eric moved to Montreal, you moved to Chicago. There was, it was a weird, a weird year, but then we, so we start back up again in 1977, you take over Montreal and basically you inherit, let's do, do a little bit of the history of Montreal. You inherit, so Glenn had that team in the beginning and they, they were expansion team in 74. They started off really well. So they were 78 and 78 the first year. And then they, the second year, 1975, they were 101 and 55. They won the East first and runs, first and runs again. So a, a typical Glenn Reed kind of like turnaround story, except in this case, an expansion team. Holthouse took the team in 76. They finished, they were just over 500. And then you came in in 77 and have been running the team ever since. So you had a pretty successful year in 77, came in second place. Yep. And then you had a string of, let's see, Rob. three three losing seasons, kind of hitting a nader in 1980, last place in the East. But then from 80 to 82, uh, also, Again, this is a common theme with these turnaround stories. Like we hear it with uh, Seattle and we heard it with Detroit of turning the team from massive loss, negative 8 million in 1980 to last year, 19 million in profit. Yeah, I think 1980 is a bit of a bizarre one because that's the year where, if I remember correctly, I just panicked right at the beginning and then decided to take a sledgehammer to the entire thing which wasn't actually a sledgehammer because as you guys may have noticed by now, I'm not a big fan of overall changes, but it's, it's a bit of a hard one to describe. I think 1980 was just a horrendous year and I cannot really figure out. As you know, last year we discussed quite a bit offline regarding the finances of the team. I was actually a bit worried regarding 81. in 81. I was a bit worried that the team was actually just bust. Because when you look at it financially, I mean, and if you look at the balance coming from 1980, which was those minus 8 million, the entire thing just seemed totally bust. And I was actually quite a bit worried about it because I just thought, well, it's one thing to be a crappy team on the field. But if you're a crappy team on the field and you are also bust, then something is horrendously wrong in what you're doing. So I actually had a bit of a soul-searching exercise, was kind of half-minded to just hand it over to someone else that could do something with it. Glenn was kind of hammering me to stay, and he was very positive, and I have to thank him for that. I went through the team, and I started to realize that 
actually, yes, there are some issues with the finances here, but the issues are not as bad as they seem because there was a real possibility of doing what was done at the end of the year, which was to have a clear out, clear the financial side of the team, get the team back on the positive and move on from there. I finally understood through that exercise how the Montreal team needed to operate because there was one thing, which was the cap, which was a very confusing thing because the cap, I always went by the cap, but the cap in Montreal actually didn't mean that because as we discussed, there was the issue of the team not making enough money to cover the cap. So it was dependent on the cash at hand or the cash that owner would inject into it, whatever you want to call it. So long story till short, the team needed to be under the cap. And when I looked at it, I thought one of the things I'm doing wrong here is that I'm spending an horrendous amount of money on the AAA team. And as fun as the AAA team having nice results is, that's not really what wins things. Speak for so, yourself. Don't tell Tim that. Speak <laughs> for so, yourself, man. Firebirds forever. So I decided to take AAA for what it is. Don't think about it as just, you cannot afford it. Essentially, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to have a, a pet project on the AAA side. I don't think I can. So I decided to write AAA is going to be what it is and whatever happens there, happens there. So we cleared a lot of, of players that were rather expensive and unproductive for the major team, filled the AAA team with whatever players it needed to compete in the league, essentially, which allowed us to clear all the finances. Once the finances were cleared, I could get a bit of um, almost a breathing space to myself. I didn't feel so bad about the entire team. And I started thinking, right, so... We have cleared one side of this. Now let's look at the team itself. And the team itself wasn't actually in a bad shape by the end of 80, 80, 81. The team itself was actually okay. I mean, the, the core of the team has been the same for almost all of the years I've been in here, except for those pitches I traded, which I regret to this day. But that aside, the core of the team was the same. So by the end of 81, I just, touched it up around the edges and around the edges and we reached the 82 team, which won, but I keep saying this was a bit of a one-off year. We won, but this is not like this team is going to start becoming a major powerhouse and just going to win everything from now onwards or be on the competitive side from now onwards. I think the team won last season for some specific reasons that I'm not sure I'm going to repeat again. So. I feel like your 1980 season and your 82 season kind of cancel each other out or they kind of average each other yeah. out. It's like everything that could have gone wrong in 80 went wrong. Yeah. Um, Cause like you said, the, 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 your, your roster didn't really change all that much. Right. Nope. So you went from 54 wins to 94 wins. Um, and essentially it was like every, everything that was going wrong in 1980 was going right in 82. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and and to, to touch on on your you you mentioned kind of the consistency of your team. I'm looking at the your lineup. So you've had, there's a couple of core players you've had year after year: Gary Carter, Gary Templeton, uh, Warren Cromarty yeah. until this yeah. season, um, Steve Kemp, and then on yeah. the pit, on the pitching side you've had well some guys have come and gone, but 
for, you've, you've, Floyd Bannister has been like the one constant, I guess, for yep. most of those years. Jim Beatty. Um, that we can't really talk about the 1982 season without um, talking about Freisleben. Um, <laughs> like, did you see that coming? Did you see him? No. Was he always no, the no, secret no, 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 secret no. weapon that you were gonna? No. Yeah. I'd love to say, yeah, me and my crystal ball. Yeah, yeah. My, my immense scouting department. No, no idea. I mean, there's that was a total one-off. That, that happened last year, and I don't think it's ever happening again with him. It may happen with another player, you never know. But this is, I mean, I think to, to a certain extent, this is the kind of luck. I mean, it, it's just... It's just a total random event that happens. I'm not sure if it is because the computer allows this kind of random events to happen or if it is just reproducing some kind of random event in life, but th that was totally random. I, I, I never expected that to happen. I just didn't see it happen. I mean, he was about to go to Los Angeles early in the season, but couldn't quite agree on trading him and ended up being another pitcher traded. I had him as a useful guy, undoubtedly. I thought, yeah, okay, he's useful. He seems okay. He's going to be fourth or fifth starter. He's going to be okay there. He's not going to give any major... There's not going to be any major damages from putting him in there. But I didn't see that one coming. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed that this year he's not even... So just to review Freisleben last year was he was 29 last year yeah the year before he was nine and four and that was kind of uh, like um that yeah. was his best year to that point and then last yeah. year he's 20 and 7 2.29 yeah. wins the era title yeah so one thing i noticed um is like he's not even in your so you okay you assume a guy's 20 wins and winning the era title sounds like he would be your ace but I see you've moved him, in the, uh, moved him into the setup role this year. Are you going to talk a little uh, bit about that? Like, how, Why is he not in your rotation? Uh, I don't believe in... I don't believe you can win the lottery twice, essentially. If you notice, he was always a reliever for his entire career. And he was, at best, acceptable as a reliever. He was going to fill in the fourth or fifth slot last year because I didn't really have anyone else that I thought mm, I can kind of trust them for that. I thought if there's one thing this guy is, is kind of reliable, is going to do it okay, but I just don't know. I just, I just look at it and I have this feeling of dread that whatever happened with him good last year, it's going to happen in reverse this year. So I'm waiting to see how this goes because he has got a big contract for this year, which the only reason he got this contract was because I still hope that he's going to just prove me wrong. And for the first few weeks, he's just going to be a total ace in the role he is and, and I move him up. But I got this feeling of immense dread <laughs> about the computer revenge. Yeah, yeah. So here. He, he went up from, he was, he made 550 last year, which is probably maybe the most bargain seasons of all time. And then he's got, he got a $3 million, uh, just a one year. Oh no, it was arbitration. Okay. Yeah, arbitration, it's arbitration. He, got, he got 3 million. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like 
Because if, if you look at his ratings, I mean, he was uh, 666 last Smart year. Co- oh, see, six, six, seven, six. Yeah, and this year is 666. It's number of the beast. It's just something's yeah, going yeah. to go wrong there. <laughs> so it's a, a preemptive demotion. And then and then <laughs> basically you're, you're playing mind games with him. And then it's like, okay, he's got he's to fight his way back into the rotation. I mean, I'll see how it goes. But you see, I just... I just don't believe in winning the lottery twice. So, yeah, he's a data scientist who believes the the ratings and not the outcome, right? I mean, that's the simplest yeah. way to say it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you're counting on Ed Whitson, your number five starter, uh, to, to he'll be your twenty game winner this year. Right. <laughs> wish he was. I wish he was. I mean, he's twenty six. It's about the time he starts doing something yeah. for a living. So yeah, I hope so. I mean, he certainly, it's an interesting case, Whitson, because I think he's got the ratings to be good. I think last year he actually showed signs that he can be good. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen this year with him. Yeah, he's kind of a late bloomer, right? I mean, I'm not looking at his stats, but I seem to he's think He's a very he, late bloomer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very, very late bloomer. So Tim always likes to say Montreal is the most balanced team in the league. So... Because so I'm always trying to characterize Montreal as like a, as a defensive team, a pitching and defense team. You always are drafting pitchers, right? You've got this commitment. You constantly yeah. are drafting like second basemen or guys who can play second base and shortstop. Like that's all they do. You just draft them over and over. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so that's my thinking. But then Tim's like, no, dude, you have to look at the rest of his team. He has on base guys. Right, Kemp or you know Cromartie yeah. was a, a decent example, or he has power guys, right? Carter or uh, Gorman Thomas, right? Exactly. So, so Tim's like, no, no, he's way more balanced, and you have to call him the most balanced team. So, I guess one question would be like, what do you think? I mean, are you trying for a balance? Are you trying for pitching and defense? Like, is there a is there a method to your madness? Let's, let's ask that question. There is method. I think it's more lack of knowledge than anything else. Essentially. I know what I don't understand. I don't under- understand the extreme teams. I don't understand the teams where everything is towards heating or towards pitching or something like that. I I don't really understand how you make a team like that and you and you win at the end. Because to me, to my mind, there's always a hole somewhere in those teams, but some of them clearly do it well and they win in the end because they know how to compensate for the, their failures in one or the other area and so on. So I go for the averages. I try to get the principle is simple. In my view, pitching doesn't win you the game, but you certainly cannot win in the end if you don't have at least decent pitching. So there's a building block there because in my view, you just are not going to do it. If your pitching is absolutely crap, there's, I don't think there's a way that you are actually going to win in the end. So there's your fundamental building block. You start there. You need to have pitchers that are decent, that can actually not carry the team, but that cannot let the team down. Dude, I'm going to test that theory this year in St. Louis. We're going to so, find out. I, We're going to well, find out if a purely hitting team with no pitching can do anything. I, so we'll I, I'm not saying that what I'm doing is right or the solution to things. Because what I do is because it's the things I understand. I know what I don't understand. I know that oh, I could cool. never build a team that wouldn't have 
pitching to a certain level. I, I, I just couldn't, I just don't even know where to start. And then when it comes to batting, again, my principle is this. If you're batting a ball, you need to be able to bat the ball on a consistent basis. Okay. Yes, you need the old guy like Thomas that yeah, he's not very regular, but when he does it, he does it well. But I just don't see that you can have an entire team of guys like that. So I go for the most rounded up players I can find. Not necessarily the guys that can do everything, but certainly the guys that can hit the ball on a regular basis. I always try to find players like that. I never go to guys with big holes on areas like contact. So always try to stick like that. And then if you are on the field and you have a glove, you are supposed to be able to catch the ball. There's no point in having a series of guys that are on the field with gloves and cannot catch the ball. Those guys are not doing anything. Just remove them and put stands in there or something like that. So again, that being the case, I need to draft guys and to pick guys that can actually pick up the ball. So in the end, you end up with a series of average players, which to a large extent, my team was made of average players. Uh, even Steve Rogers, if you look at him as a pitcher, is pretty average. He's got holes in there. He's not like this pitching overlord like Bill Singer was or something like that. He's just slightly above average in some areas, roughly average in the others. He can do his job fine. Very steady Joe. Fine. I like that. Again, you go to guys like Steve Camp, who, again, is not a wondrous spotter is not going to win the home runs. It's not going to win any of that, but he can do everything he does on a regular basis. He just keeps going through the season, trudging along at the same decent level. And in the end, all these things, which is why I think I ended up winning last year, was that I had this series of average guys producing at a decent level for the best part of the year, we did not have any injuries. We were lucky that that guy Friesleben or Friesleben or whatever is called, I can't even say his name, had this kind of freakish season. And there was a lot of people around that were kind of trying to rebuild their teams. So a collection of average Joes just kind of scooped up the entire thing and ended up doing it. I think the other thing is that what, the postseason proof is that this team is, if there's one word that can define them, is that they are resilient. They just didn't seem ever to want to lose a game. They always came back. One way or another, they were always coming back. They started losing, then they would come back. Sometimes they'd lose, sometimes they'd win. But there was always, they always did something. There was just not this drama of the 15 nil results or anything like that. So in in essence, my team building philosophy is these guys need to be able to do the job they are supposed to do at a decent level. So if you're a batter, you need to be able to grab the ball when you have the glove in there and you're on the field. And when you're batting, you need to be able to hit the ball. That's, in my so, view, it's pretty so, fundamental so, thing. So, so, so so Tim's right. You you go for balance, right? Yeah, I, mean, I go for balance. In yeah, short, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, try, or... I, I try to find the most rounded up group that I can build with whatever tools I have at hand. I want these guys to be able to do their jobs, but to be able to do everything that they are supposed to do to at least a decent level. So that's always been the thing that I've 
I try to do too. So I think Brooklyn is also in that. I always call Brooklyn a pretty well-balanced team. They always seem to have, you know, two or three really good pitchers, pretty solid hitting and solid defense. So Montreal, Brooklyn are kind of, kind of in this, if you think about a spectrum of like pure hitting and pure pitching teams, I always think of Montreal and Brooklyn kind of right in that center of like, not just balanced, but also good, good, at, uh, good at a bunch of different things. Right. Cause there are teams that are also balanced that are just complete crap at everything. Right. That's balanced also. It's just, on the negative side. One thing I noticed about your team was that last year you ended up, you've always had a pretty decent defense kind of above average, but last year you ended up, you were first in the league in, in zone rating. And that's kind of like, that's the the single defensive stat that I kind of look at. It's basically kind of like defensive runs saved. So you went from eighth, fourth to first in zone rating. So it's clear that part of this balance is like, even in a balanced kind of system or or philosophy, there seems to be, it seems to be that you're, you're kind of favoring defense to a greater extent than, than hitting, hitting and pitching. Is that, is that accurate? I don't like to lose. So yeah, I, I think yes is the answer. I am very careful to avoid big holes in defense. To me, if you're playing a game, the more runs you concede, the more runs you have to score. So if you start by the base point that you don't want to suffer a lot of runs and you want to avoid them as much as possible, then your role to actually winning a game becomes much smaller. So yeah, you defend first and then you attack. Yeah, and I noticed, you know, we mentioned like, two of the stalwarts of your team have been the two Garys, Gary Carter and Gary Templeton. So those guys are, I think what Carter's a 10 and Templeton is a, is a nine. Uh, and, and, you know, they can obviously both, both hit as well. Yep. So yep. Good, good solid core there. So you mentioned resilience, like last year, like, you know, they kept, kept coming back. We call in the playoffs. Like I think almost all your playoff wins were come yep. from behind wins. French Ricky said that luck is the residue of design, right? So do you think that resilience is a residue of, of balance? If your hitters slump, but you still have good defense and, and some speed and some pitching, like if, if you're slumping in one phase of the game, if you're balanced, you still have a chance to win because you've got all these other areas that you can do well at. Um, is, is that also, is that kind of like one of your philosophies too, in terms of your I wouldn't call it a philosophy. I think it's just the end result of the type of team. I think it's it's just something that happens if you have a really balanced team. You are going to inevitably, even if you fall behind, you won't fall behind by a lot. You'll eventually end up scurrying some and you have a chance. So I think it's just a... a um, Almost, I would call it almost a side effect of the way the team is built. I don't think it, I, I didn't went to this with a specific purpose of, of building an extraordinary resilient team that will just come back from the death every single time. So I think it's just a side effect of the way the team is built. I think there's also a bit of luck in all of this. So another thing I want to comment on is, is your your characterization of your of your players of just like average type players. So I'm looking at the if you go to the meet the team tab and it gives you the position rankings. Yeah. So part of what you're saying is is accurate. There's no one on your team who is 
first or my Alexa just randomly talked to me. So there's no one on your team who's ranked even in the top three at their position, but you have a bunch of guys who are ranked four five and six. So Gary Carter is the fourth best catcher. Gary Templeton is the fourth best shortstop. We've got Steve Kemp is rated as the fifth best right fielder. Gorman Thomas, the sixth best center fielder and bump wills as the sixth best second baseman. So I think you're underselling your team a little bit. Like you have, yeah, you don't have any superstars. You don't have a, a Winfield or a Horner. Yeah, but see, on a league with this amount of teams, you're still pretty much average. I think when I say that, that these guys are average, it's not that they are average as in just um, mediocre or something like that. I think they are just average because, I mean, certainly there are no, no Bob Horners in here. There's nothing like that. I mean, these guys are are good because they are good players, but they are not superstars nor any kind of superstar caliber players in here. I just think they are they work well together in a combination. And of course, I'm going to eat my words now because this isn't going to be a disaster. <laughs> well, can we just say though? So, can I just bust in for a second? So, so I think it's absolutely shown over the course of the UL that you can win with a, a collection of so-called average players. I, I think of Montreal's entire history from when I had them to Joe and um, there's some other teams I think we could cite where like Brooklyn, for example, right? If you look at Brooklyn, there's no, you wouldn't say, oh, that's the best guy at his position. Landro, maybe Schmidt, maybe, but not anymore, right? I mean, there's a bunch of guys at third base that are probably ahead of Schmidt now, right? But yeah, Brooklyn made the playoffs last year, right? So so you don't have to absolutely have like, it's not like you need Winfield at every position or C Rob at every position. So, so I think you're absolutely right about that, but there is an area where Montreal is exceptionally good. And that's again, back to it's the defense, right? So if you have a 10 rated catcher a nine rated shortstop an eight or nine rated center fielder and a seven or eight rated second baseman and the corner guys, every other guy is also a seven. I mean, your team defense is like on par with Charlie or Tim, like it's exceptional. So back to that thing about, oh, I just draft shortstops and put them at every position, or I just draft center fielders and have them play all over the outfield. So you do have exceptional team defense. And I think that's the thing that you can't really explain freeze Laban, right? I'm trying to like backwards rationalize it, but, but how you could rationalize it is, well, if he, an 18 raid starter pitching behind, one of the best defenses in the league can really perform well. Right. So it's clearly he outperformed, but maybe he didn't, but at least part of the outperformance, I guess I'm trying to say is explainable by the benefit of, you know, basically gold glovers, like all over the diamond behind him. So I guess yeah. what I'm trying to say is you're, you're average in a sense, but, but there's another sense in which you're you, by adding all those, you know, shortstop type guys together, you end up with something that is exceptional and that's the defense. I think your defense is really, really, you know, among the very best in the league. I understand the concept that, okay, you may have a player that is exceptionally good batting and you just make allowances for the fact that he couldn't catch a ball if he had like a mattress-sized glove in his hand. I fully appreciate that as a principle, but if you cannot get that exceptionally good batter, if you what you're get what you're getting is a guy that is okay, he's a good batter. If he has got a monumental hole on his defense, 
I just don't understand really the concept of why not going with a guy that is maybe marginally worse as a batter, but is actually much superior in defense. So yeah. to my mind, doesn't really make sense. I mean, and as I say, I fully appreciate that people build th- build teams in different ways and that someone may actually yeah. build a team based on guys that just cannot defend for their lives and actually make it work in one way or another. I just cannot. So I kind of grab whatever I know and try to make the best out of it. Well, that's why it seems to be working, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to point out here that, that it wasn't all just Dave Freisleben. You had no. Floyd Bannister, um, yeah. 16 and 11. You Charlie Lay was 14 and 12, uh, 3.2 ERA. Uh, Steve Rogers has been um, a, a solid guy. Um, Jim yeah. Beatty. So you've had, you've always had four or five really solid pitchers. Yeah. And another guy we haven't mentioned yet, who also had a breakout year, Dave Smith. This guy Dave was Smith. was lights out, eleven and two, thirty two saves, and his ERA was one point seven. So you don't really see guys, maybe other than Bruce Suter, who can like string together three or four seasons like that, one right. after the other. But he was definitely a key guy. Um, and I think he wasn't he your playoff MVP or like I don't know he, he yeah played a he key was. role in the World Series for sure. Like he came I mean, in every time he came in, he just like shut the other team down. I but the, but see Dave Smith I think is a very different case because I think his progress is actually sustainable. Well, he's not going to progress forever obviously. And I think he's pretty much plateaued now. Hopefully he has plateaued at this level of last season, but this progress is sustainable if you look at his previous seasons, I mean 80 and 81, you could see that he was slowly moving forward. So there was a natural progression there up to the last season. There was a logic to what happened with him. So you could see that he was moving forward and you'd logically expect him to progress still a bit because obviously he's now he's not 27, he's 26. So he could progress still a bit. So there was a logic there. Unlike Friesleben, which that was just something else. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Dave Smith was, uh, he was a seventh overall pick in 1980. So that, I think that makes him probably the highest drafted reliever, maybe since Bruce Suter. Number seven was a very high pick, but yeah, by all accounts, he's been well worth it. He, he, he was drafted as a 5'10", and he was fully cooked, it looks like, yeah. back in 1980. Yeah. And his, his his ratings have not, like, if you look at his, his, uh, his rating chart, it's like nothing has changed. Like, Literally every single number on the chart is ex- has been constant. Four star current, four star potential, five ten eight, five ten eight, ninety to ninety two. It's just super consistent, and 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 yeah, the year before he had twenty one saves, three point three seven, and then last year was just a breakout. So yeah, I think obviously they're two different two different cases. I think um, uh, Smith is probably more more likely to continue on as he was as he was last year. Well, I certainly think so. I mean, the, the reason why he was drafted was because, again, if you're a team with a small budget, I mean, you're not going to draft a guy that is going to stay for three or four seasons until he can actually contribute. That's just financial suicide, honestly, as much as you like the guy. So I tend to go to the best guy that is available, ready to go at the time I'm picking. And the best guy that I needed at that time was him. So there you go. You pick him. He's yep. a reliever. Fine. That's fine. These guys are also important. So. Mm-hmm. All right, let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk about what your expectations are for 83. Lonnie Smith has got a couple of things. Start with he has got smaller contract, 
is younger and he may offer a bit more offensively. Also, I have a lot of lefties batting and Lonnie Smith is actually a righty. So that helps balance things a bit. So I thought that if I'm not losing dramatically in a trade like this and I get a younger player, it's a team with a smaller budget that needs to hold players that they have got for longer as much as possible. So you want younger players that can contribute for a larger length of time before they actually start becoming really expensive. I think it makes sense. If I can get away without touching the team, I will do it. I don't mind keeping the same team for 50 years as long as they do their job and they keep doing it. That's fine by me. So one thing that you just touched on, Joe, with the, with the Cromarty lonnie Smith trade, you just kind of like almost alluded to it in passing, but it's something I wanted to highlight because you talked about a slightly cheaper contract, right? Trying to keep your expenses down. You did something that no team in history has ever done. You were the first team in UL history to win the World Series with the lowest payroll. You know, a couple of teams have come close. Um, a couple of Glenn's favorite teams, uh, 1958 Louisville and 1959 San Francisco <laughs> were, were uh, kind of at the yeah. bottom. They were in the bottom three. But Montreal last year, first team ever. So can you talk a little bit about that? Obviously, it was not your plan to win the World Series last year. Nope. I think I've said this to Glenn last season. I had my finances were second from the bottom. And I remember, I think I said something along the lines of, Anything I finish above second from the bottom is good for me because if I'm second from the bottom in finances, that should be my natural place. So anything above that is going to be good. So that's how how realistic, uh, how well I, I was in understanding the capabilities of my team. So maybe I'm a bit pessimistic, I'd say, but there was no plan to win last year. Um, but there was a brutal plan to actually cut the finances to basically to bare basics. And there still is, there, there still is, because that's why I don't get too involved with free agents or anything like that, because you just end up paying through the nose for something that may just explode on the first game of the season. So I, I made a conscious effort this season, again, to keep things as basic as it is. And I ended up spending a bit more because I ended up with a lot of picks for the draft. So I ended up already spending a bit more than I expected because some of the picks were high. But again, I I needed a lot of players for my team and I had two ways to go about it. I could either go through the draft, as I did, through trades and getting some more picks to go through the draft and ending up paying a bit more for players that are potentially more useful in the long run or sticking to some scrubs from AA at 350 a year and just filling every single place that was with them. But I thought, "Mm, makes sense. Some of the players in my team are not getting any younger. Some of them are going away at the end of this season. So I thought "Mm, maybe make a bit more of an effort this season, spend a bit more and being slightly less frugal than last season. So I'm I'm looking at the contracts page. I'm 11th now. So again, anything I finish above 11th would be good. 
as part of that spending a bit more like so, so some of that probably came from arbitration right like we already talked about right yeah price, price labeling, i mean yeah he, he's like two the 2.5 million right there i but was, but, was his raise but he was a one-off yeah it seems, it seems like you've done a really good job keeping the the payroll low can i bring up something from the uh the ratings count i do every year yeah oh sure well so so one thing i mean just kind of actually proves or yeah, proves out or supports something we were talking about earlier, which is um, you're the third best defensive team. And I, I had you at 35. Of the four up the middle players, I had you at 35. And there's only two teams ahead of you. They both had 36. So so you were just about the best defensive team. But by – and that doesn't count the wing players, right? Again, on the corners, every guy you have is like a seven or better, right? So, so arguably your team defense may well have been the best team, team defense but I have your starters or your pitchers at the sixth best. So I think you ended up with, was it, if you weren't the number one team in run scored, you were definitely two or three, right? You were definitely in the top yeah. two or three. So, I mean, so there is some leverage there or there is some, uh, you know, clearly some benefit there, but that actually wasn't the thing I wanted to mention. Sorry. The thing I actually wanted to mention was, <laughs> so I also looked at this time, your age your squad is almost the youngest squad. You're 13th out of 14 teams. So, so yeah. we haven't really addressed, but the fact that you just won the world series on the lowest payroll with the youngest team. You can't just be like, Oh, I'm poised to, I'm just going to suck and finish, you know, 15th again or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't just refer to the money table. There's something else going on here, bro. So, I mean, you know, like I think I, you might you might do a bit better than you know whatever yeah, thirteen. I I again th that's another reason for getting to involve with free agents. I don't necessarily if you have a low budget team if if you are working things and to be quite honest this year is actually okay. Last year was worse in terms of, in terms of budget because the previous year was just an or in terms of finances. So but if you have a team with if you don't have a lot of money to throw away, you don't want to offer a guy on his reaching his 30s or on his 30s a six-year contract or a four-year contract winning a fortune. Free agency sometimes takes you along those lines, renewing contracts with players that are getting on their years may saddle you with a really horrendous contract for a long run. And again, if you have a lot of money, these things are no problem. It's a bit like the Giants and Barry Zito. It's just, yeah, it was a disaster, but yeah, they had the money, they could afford it. If you don't Dude. have the money, you need to be careful about these things, I think. And I I may be overcautious, but I yeah, certainly as we were just discussing in the train with Lonnie Smith and Cromarty, it's two years between them, but those two years are something if you're paying a, a player a lot of money. So you don't want them getting too close to the 30s. I also have a slightly bad experience with this engine. And of course, this is a game, it's a computer game, which you may sometimes forget almost, but it is a computer game. And so when players go over the 30s, they start to enter a routine decline. Some of them don't decline as much. Some of them just fall off a cliff. But that's you're getting very near to giving the computer a chance to screw you up big time. And if you can avoid it, then I certainly believe in avoiding it too. 
Again, there's a guy that is younger, is slightly worse than the older guy. I tend to go for the younger guy, even if I lose a bit in terms of performance. The oldest player on your team is 32, and that's Steve, yeah. Ro- Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers. Mo- more than half of your team is under 25. And including, by the <laughs> way, like, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about the two Garys, right? Gary Carter and Gary uh, Templeton. Templeton, who you've had forever. Templeton, remember, he's only 26. So in 77, first season with Montreal, he was 20. So he's he's only 26. Gary Carter is only 27. So, so even the guys that you've had forever are still kind of only in, in their mid-20s. So, um, so that's great. Another thing I'm looking at on the contracts page, you only have four guys locked up after this season. Um, so... <laughs> So you, but, <laughs> that's crazy, bro. Which is his, the only the only team with fewer is San, San Francisco has one guy. San Francisco has Randy Moffitt signed through '84. Everyone else is only this year only. You're like the anti Eric Holdhouse uh, in, when it when it comes to contracts, right? It's like you. It sounds like you're very cautious. You're very you're very skeptical about long term player development, and you would rather your approach to mitigating risk is just don't sign guys past this year, right? See how they do, and then. Yep. Either re-up them with arbitration or say say goodbye or whatever. Um, yep. Is that a conscious choice or is it that, is? But keeping your roster young is you're not having to sign. You, I don't think you have any guys coming up for free agency, right? That that's one advantage. I do. Of, of, I think I think Gorman Thomas is coming and Steve Rogers. So yep. what what is your plan for those guys? Are you gonna trade them? Because generally, with most free agents, you, they're really hard to sign for one year, right? Usually, they want a multi-year. I they want deal. more. Yeah, they want. I I haven't even tried to sign them again. If I'm brutally honest and probably giving away the secrets, I have serious thoughts that Corman Thomas will continue on the way he has been coming. Mm-hmm. I think he has already reached the plateau some time ago. Mm-hmm. Is now on his happy decline into a potential very expensive retirement. So, see how it goes this season. I mean, he was okay last season. He was actually surprisingly good last season. Not as good <laughs> yeah. as the first season in Montreal. Yeah. But he, he was actually surprisingly good. It was his best season in terms of average ever in his career yeah. in the majors. 278, 30 right. points above his, he's a, he's a 248 career right. hitter. So he was really good last season, see how he goes this season, but Steve Rogers is a different thing. I always tend to have a soft spot for pitchers. So see how it goes. The last thing you want is to enter into a contract with these guys sooner than you absolutely have to and see them just falling apart two weeks later. So... Yeah, yeah. It's a cautious decision. It's you sometimes risk these things, and then these guys or these guys may just turn and say, "Oh, I don't want to sign. I want to test free agency," which is the most likely thing with the with the the with the engine. So we have to ask. You know, you won the World Series last year, returning the same team intact. Like, what are your realistic expectations for this year? I'm looking at the the uh, preseason predictions. And the game has Montreal pretty much where they were last year, which is kind of like third or fourth overall, yeah. squeaking in as a wild card, um, basically returning to the playoffs. Is that where you see your team? There's a bit less rebuilding going around this year. So that plays against us. Um, we are not going to have the super secret pitcher from last season. So that also goes against us. If we are able to stick with 
the same amount of injuries we had last season, which was basically none, I think we can think of squeaking to the playoffs. Just. But that assumes everything goes well. If everything goes well, I think we have a chance of reaching the playoffs. If there's a hiccup in the middle of this, there's not a lot. Because obviously, goes without saying, when you reduce your AAA, your AAA to the bare bones, there's not a lot of depth. To a certain extent, you are stuck with what you have. There's a bit more of depth this year because the draft gave us a bit more options if there's problems in some areas. But if you suddenly find yourself with two, three serious injuries, then that may just throw the entire train off the tracks. But let's assume no injuries, no surprising pitcher maestros, everything goes as expected. I expect us to reach the playoffs. What happens after is a bit of a coin toss. But... In your case, a coin toss that lands on heads eight times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well. So, so I have to ask you this. We, I think we asked uh, Peter Bays this. He, he admitted like he doesn't pay, he pays attention to the West Division. He said he doesn't even really pay attention to the East Division. How much do you pay attention to what other teams are doing and how does that affect what you're doing with your moves? I don't necessarily change my approach because of what other teams are doing. I just try to do the best with the tools at hand. Because again, I, I think it's safe to say if there's a lot of rebuilding going around, you can look at things in a more positive way. I, I understand the reason why you enter into a wholesale rebuild. I, I wouldn't be able to do it, so I don't even try it. But when there's a lot of that going around, that kind of flags up that there's an opportunity there. This year, that doesn't seem to be the case. People seem to enter on a more, much more steady route. I tend to keep an eye on what the teams in the East do, for obvious reasons. Essentially, any big moves, see where they are having, where they are heading. I also keep an eye on their draft, because the drafts usually give you an indication. If, if there's really good players in the draft, you want to keep an eye on who they fall to, because those guys can can seriously, especially now that some teams find themselves with two picks on the first round, you want to definitely keep an eye on all those teams. So I keep a close eye on the draft. After that, I just keep an eye on where the teams are in in the table. Keep an eye on where they are. See if you can avoid them in the postseason. But yeah, I keep an eye on the big moves, essentially. Keep a very close eye on the draft for all sides. And when people post players available for trade, when people start posting their entire team available for trade and things like that, because that just flags up who's thinking about rebuilding, who's thinking about sending a lot of players. And also, if a team has got a lot of players to trade, you want to have a look at their team, and I tend to have a look at their team to see if they are just trading kind of all the scrubs they have on AE away, or if they are actually, if the team is starting to age and the teams are starting to lower the rankings and which means that the team is going down. So I tend to follow those kind of moves. It's always useful to know what people are trading for what, because sometimes you realize that you are suddenly going to be facing a much stronger opponent in your division. So it sounds like when you're monitoring things like the trade, like trade blocks and things, it's not necessarily, because obviously you're not, you're not as hyperactive. No, no, no. I'm not looking for trades. You're not necessarily looking for, to see, okay, who's on this list of nope. uh, who might I be interested in? 
But yeah. you're kind of using that as intel, like, oh, it looks like, okay, Chicago is just listed 10 guys, all right? So what, yeah. does, that, what does that tell me about where this team is? Uh, yeah, in the exactly. Grand, in the grand scheme of things. Okay, yeah, that's, exactly. that's very interesting. So, so next year, when we, when we, with expansion and the realignment, Montreal will be in the, in the new Atlantic division. Mm. It'll be Manhattan, Brooklyn, Boston, Montreal, what do you think that division will look like and what your prospects will be in that division? And then, and then also kind of your general, general impressions or, or comments on, on the new division and playoff structure. I think we are largely screwed. Essentially those four teams who are going to be <laughs> screwing each other because we are just going to be killing each other for a spot, which is going to be a, absolutely insane thing to achieve so yeah that's going to be like a, a russian roulette every single year so yeah i'm not looking forward to that let's just say that <laughs> yeah yeah i mean <laughs> that's a great great endorsement <laughs> i mean you i mean you're right i mean i'm looking at the like on the history tab the teams that have made the playoffs in recent years i mean if you go back to 79 which wasn't that long ago three of the four playoff teams were in that are in that what's going to be the Atlantic division, right? Manhattan, Boston, yeah. Manhattan, Boston, and Brooklyn. And the team that wasn't was you who just won the world series. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely no lightweights. I would say that might nope. be, that might be the most, the of all the divisions that might be the one with the most parity because there, there, there are no lightweights. There's no St. Louis's or Washington's in that division. But at the same time, the two juggernauts we have in the league right now are, are LA and Detroit. So neither of them are in there. So that could be a super interesting, super interesting division. Yeah, yeah I was actually, yeah, I was going to argue the, exactly. I was going to take the opposite side of the trade because, <clears throat> because those four teams are in your division now. Right. So for that's really yeah. like no change essentially. Right. You, and if anything, right. Uh, <laughs> to Tim's thing, to Tim's thing, you know, you don't have to deal with the toughest team. And so now all you have to do is finish top of the four in your mini table. Aye, but that's one big difference. Now I just have to finish on the top three. So, so A, you can top your mini table, or B, you could finish fifth or sixth, right? So maybe sixth is easier than third or fourth, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I'm not sure that it's actively worse, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, as I say, I tend to be a bit pessimistic. It changes the calculus a little bit because, you know, if you come in third or fourth now, you're you're still in the semifinals. You only have to win two series to win the title. If you're coming next, starting next year, you come in second in your division. Doesn't matter how good you are. You could be the second best overall. If you're finishing second in your division, you're still slotting in that first round. You have to win three series. So first of all, it'll be four pennant races instead of two, and then you know it, it changes the what it, what it means to be a wild card team. It's significantly more worse to be a, a wild card under the new, the new system than what we have now. I think. Yeah. And so you support sporting. So I, does that mean you like uh, you support Celtic in Scotland because of the hoops or what? Yeah, and because a lot of people I know support them, so it makes it yeah, easier to yeah. have a conversation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Also, also in in Scotland is a bit different because the clubs in Scotland, the two big clubs in Scotland are connected to political and religious backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for sure. So yeah. you've got Rangers who, who are the Protestant Unionist yeah. club and yeah. Celtic who are the Catholic and Independence club. So yeah. in here, it's a lot more complicated than it's... <laughs> yes, yes. So. Well, good times, bro. Good stuff, man. 
All right. Well, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, I want to thank I want to thank Jolima for coming on, and uh, it's, it's getting close to your bedtime there in Scotland. So it was awesome to uh, to chat with you, get to know you a little Hi. bit, talk about your team, and you know we'll have to do this again and talk talk about uh, you know military simulations. We didn't talk about horses totally. at all. Horses at all. So yeah, yeah. we didn't talk about architecture at all. So it's a lot more ground to cover. Let's not <laughs> yeah, talk so, yeah. yeah, but let's not talk about the architecture really. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's avoid that one. Better <laughs> right. avoid it. Okay. All right. Um, I did think it was it was uh, fitting that that you got uh, Mont- Montreal's new stadium was considered uh, in 1976. It was like this architectural gems. I thought yeah, was... it is a beautiful architectural piece. I must yeah. say. Yeah. I think it's actually quite good. Yeah. As as stadiums go. Yeah. 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 For sure. All right. Well, thanks again. And I uh, thank you. Yep. Wish you best of luck this season. Uh, it it was su- super exciting uh, to see Montreal kind of have this resurgence. It's always exciting when a team kind of comes out of, I wouldn't say you came out of nowhere, but to kind of come out of like, kind of like that third, fourth place zone yeah. and then just run, run the table um, was super exciting. Probably less so for, for Sean, but yeah. Um, well, it was quite it was quite bizarre because when we reached the end, I actually wished him good luck, and he just said something. Ah, oh, my team never wins against yours, and I thought, ah, that's not true. And then I actually went to check, and I thought, oh, I didn't realize he's actually right. I have a chance here. That was the first time that I actually thought, oh, we may actually do this. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah, that's bizarre. Yeah. But there you go. All right, guys. Well, thanks again. Pleasure. And until next time, here's to fake baseball.